I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast. And you will be hearing a familiar voice today, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Shauna Knox. If you don't mm-hmm. know, she was on a previous episode with Jaleen and Nikebo, the book that you've written, which we're going to mm-hmm. talk about today, which is something that every single Black woman, especially Black women from the Caribbean, should read. I know we're talking academia today, but this is not by any stretch a purely academic book. And mm-hmm. it's so impactful and so insightful for every Black woman who is exploring how to not be pigeonholed by the confines of patriarchy, the confines of whiteness, Mm. or being juxtaposed to whiteness in every single aspect of your lives. And how do we remove ourselves from that space and whether whether that's even possible? Mm. I think it's an important question to to talk about. So welcome, Dr. Shauna Knox. Introduce yourself for people who haven't heard you on the podcast before. Hello, dope black woman. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. Um, I am Dr. Shauna Knox, known affectionately to you as Shauna, um, Dr. Levers. <laughs> and um, the book that we're gonna talk about today is called Engaging Career Towards Decolonization, Negotiating Black Womanhood Through Autobiographical Analysis. That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'm speaking from the social location of being a Black woman who was born in the United States when my parents came here to go to school. And then I grew up in Jamaica and came back to the States at 18. Um, Yeah, that's my social location and that's my work. And this work, let's just give the good news, has been awarded honorable mention for outstanding book of the year for 2022. That is fucking amazing. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the AERA conference um, sent me an email saying that I was going to receive honorable mention for the award. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really think it was a real thing. I don't know what... I was doing with that, but I didn't even attend the conference. And then I got several emails um, last week from people saying, wow, they like talked about your book for 10 minutes. And I kind of had a life check-in moment where I realized I wasn't receiving 
what was coming my way. Um, but this book definitely is the blood, sweat, and tears of seven years of the Academy um, and writing against what the Academy considers to be valuable knowledge, real knowledge. I mean, it's a very epistemically violent place. You know, it, epistemology is just what can be known. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying that for anyone who may not know that word. Um, and, you know, the violence there is, is what you know really worth knowing? I mean, does this rise to the level of being something that people should learn about? And the messaging, by and large, for people like us, Black women who are from the third world, global, self-developing world, whatever they want to call us today, is no, we, we, we shouldn't be included in the canon um, because it's, it's not worth knowing. Mm. And so navigating the academy and trying to demonstrate that the standard of my work meets the standard of me being able to progress through all the stages while simultaneously challenging those standards in the first place. I mean, that was just a real undertaking. And so it's hard to now accept that the same academy is now turning around and like the AERA most outstanding book award is giving me honorable mention. It's just like, my mind is trying to catch yeah. up, <laughs> but it doesn't know where to go. It doesn't know where to be. So I'm glad I'm just here with you to chat about it because I, I don't know where I can be with them yet. It's heartbreaking <laughs> for me because I think I've always avoided calling myself an academic because I was mm. so intent on demonstrating that academia doesn't provide a place for uh, black women and black people mm -hmm. to talk about the things that are important to us and value that in the same way that they value your traditional Western philosophers. And, yeah. and so I was just like, oh, I'm not an academic. I just use academia mm -hmm. to care right. and fight for the things that I want to. But what you've done is that you've advanced the way in which academia has actually, you forced academia to transition the things that they see and identify as valuable, which is so important for young black women coming up who want to be professors, who want to write academic, academic books. I mean, in the UK, and I'm sure there's the dearth is equally as uh, comparable in the US. I think there are something mm -hmm. like 25 black professors in the UK. And Whoa. you can imagine how few of those are actually women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what you've done with this book, because so many black uh, academics write about things that are important to them. Whereas I think traditionally other academics, i.e. white academics will write about anything that has any sort of interest to them, even if it's not personal. And what mm -hmm. you've done is you've allowed your personal experience frame that within an academic context and mm -hmm. given it to them and said, this matters and, and, and framed it in a way that they've received that. And now so many other black women will be able to do the same thing. So it is, thank you. And it is massively mm. important, this work of, and I want you to explain kind of what the book talks about, because there is this, there is this <clears throat> personal and political combination that you so uniquely combine that I think I, I personally have never seen anybody else write, marry the two in the way that you have in this book. Wow. 
So I want the audience to get a sense of what the book is about and, mm -hmm. and, and how you started even thinking about this book. Like how did this, did the journey of self-exploration through this book come about from academia or was it the other way around? Were you constantly looking for a way to explore yourself and your own experiences and then academia was that pathway? Talk a little bit about the book and, and how you got here. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, when I was in Jamaica, I spent a couple years at Campion. And then after that, I went to the American International School. And I was able to do some like college level courses. So you could really deeply engage literature. And so there is an anthology called the Norton's Anthology. And it's supposed to be the best poetry, the best short stories, just the best of all writing. Um, like recognized in the field as like, this is the top of the canon. And everybody, girl, everybody was just white. You're just white as you want to be white. Um, and it started to really become dissonant for me as I sat in my Jamaican classroom. I mean, you know, I was Jamaican in the classroom. We had a plethora of students from different places. Um, my, my teacher was, I think, from somewhere, somewhere in London. I want to say Wales, but I don't think that it was Wales and I don't think that's London, but like somewhere <laughs> in the UK that was English speaking. And um, I said to her, um, wait a minute, this is, this is, this is getting weird. Nobody black is in this. It's nobody black has ever written anything that's risen to the level of the Norton's anthology. Um, and this white woman from the UK gave me a recommendation to read um, V.S. Naipaul, A House for Mr. Biswa, which was so long. Oh my God. It's but it so was- a, But it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, man. It was an eye opener and I had never read anything like it. And it just kind of set me off on this traje trajectory to discover what to me were the hidden writers that I had never read as someone who loved reading and somebody who loved, um, who loved different voices and wanted to find out if there were more voices that were even more diverse because, you know, Naipaul is an Indian person from Trinidad and that's interesting, but that still ain't me, you know, yeah. and it's, it's good to get, you're not white, but you know, I'm still not there yet. And so I went to my, my university in, um, Richmond, Virginia, the head, the capital of the Confederacy. And I had my long swinging blonde braids and, and my short shorts and just feeling myself. Okay. Cause I'm like, you guys are fine. Like you be you, I'm going to be me. That's what we're doing here. And then I saw my first noose hanging on the campus. I saw my second noose. Wow. I saw a little black face at my friend's um, Halloween slash birthday party. I said, wait, this is really, I just didn't know we were still in this era where you just need to hang a noose. Like you were just in your dorm room and you put that together. Like, how do you know how to tie it? it? There were so many questions. And so while I was there, I just decided I'm going to study as much about blackness as I can. So that looked like me majoring in international studies with a concentration in Africa. And I minored in Latin American and Iberian studies trying so hard to find the Caribbean somewhere. Yeah. And then um, my other minor was um, anthropology. And I think I did a third minor in Kiswahili. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. I, I did Africa. I did Latin America and Iberian studies. I did a little Kiswahili. Where are we? Still can't find us. Yeah. 
I started a club at the at the university, chartered it. I'm really happy to hear it's still going. West Indian Link, and I was able to do it mostly because I was on the Senate and I could whip my little votes and do my thing. And when I had to argue for the existence of the organization, because it was called West Indian Link, they were like, we already have an Indian club. That's where we were. That's where we were in the early aughts. The distinction. Oh my God. Yeah. It it just didn't even register as a place. It didn't exist as a thing. In my last year there, um, I was selected to be a speaker at graduation weekend. And I put that in jeopardy because the global studies, international studies wing of the university, they were doing like a big globe. And so the students got to vote on what it was going to be like. And the scale of the globe meant that the Caribbean countries would not appear on the globe because the scale of the globe just would show the continents. And I said, the, what in the entire God? <laughs> you are, you're an international studies program that's going to erase us from the globe like we don't actually even appear so we don't have a program okay we don't have uh, we don't have a club we gotta fight for the club and now we can't be on the globe i mean we already know that you know mapping studies is very subjective but the fact that you were willing to completely erase us it made me push really hard before i left for our existence and i'm really happy to say that we appear on the globe we are a dot, but a dot we are, okay? I see. I can see Jamaica on that globe. Um, but I'm saying this to say that um, as I was searching in my study of the humanities and, and searching broadly, I just could not find myself. And I realized that by the time I finished my master's, I was teaching in a public school um, and I did a master's in, in curriculum and I was ready to kind of do my doctoral studies, I knew that this is the last time I'm going to study. Surely I must find myself. And you know what? I didn't. I still didn't. I still couldn't find the voice of Black women from the global South in the studies. I couldn't, more specifically, I couldn't really find the voice of Black women from the Caribbean. That is not to say no voice was there, but I'm saying I'm looking for an existing dialogue, discourse, and conversation that I could join myself to. And that just did not exist. Um, And further, me pushing to look for it uh, made my professors begin to question whether or not I was serious about my course of study or, you know, I was interested in just interesting asides that aren't really the main thing. They are not serious social science, empirical types of study. And so that just kind of made me dig my heels in further and decide, like, before I leave here, kind of like before I left University of Richmond, I was like, y'all gonna put us on the globe. Um, we're going to be in the canon because I got to do it for everybody who was looking like me and did not find it. And so I decided to write this book specifically, I created a method for decolonizing subjectivity, right? So if, you know, Marcus Garvey said a long time ago, emancipate yourself from mental slavery, number ourselves can free our mind. It's literally just, if I wanted to do that, how would I do it? If my mind has become a territory, a land that whiteness has dominated, and, and, and control and kind of taught me how to think and what to think and what to say and how to say it. How would I undo that if I wanted to undo it? And decolonial theory is, is an existing type of scholarship. Um, but I was bringing together 
decolonial theory and and curriculum studies and there are some there are some scholars that are already in that that conversation but not from the space that i'm talking about it from which is black women from the global south specifically situating it in the caribbean yeah. that i could not find and that was became my mandate we're going to put it there it's going to be there if it's one book you're going to be able to find it um and so that's the story of me in the academy Wow, that is so interesting because I think this book, and mm. you, you described it, but this book does just that. As I was reading it, I was listening to your stories and your experiences and finding mm. my own in them. Mm-hmm. Even though the details might have been slightly different, there were thematic, there were some, in some cases, actual literal similarities, like... <laughs> um, about what your parents were like or what you mm-hmm. how you were forced to behave in order to in in accordance with being um you know speaking the queen's english or mm-hmm. behaving a certain way that was was considered less black and more appropriate i.e more white mm-hmm. and how you internalize that because i think so many times when we talk about decolonization we talk about the broad spectrum things right we talk about mm-hmm reparations we talk about moving past mm-hmm. colonialism, whether that's even possible because we're we always talk about being in a post-colonial state when we're probably in a colonial mm-hmm. neo-colonial mm-hmm. Yeah. absolutely and so what is decolonization when you're talking about yourself as an individual especially when you're still situated within a um within a colonized space um mm-hmm. and yeah, so talk to us about what that looks like. What was the method that you developed to decolonize yourself as a Black Caribbean woman? And I think about this particularly in the context of the Caribbean because the Caribbean mm-hmm. builds upon colonialism. We're not talking mm-hmm. about Africans or you know Afri- the continent that came from its own culture and then was warped by colonialism. Caribbean mm-hmm. culture is by its very nature a melding of of African cultures and and non-African cultures, whether that's white, you know, American, British, Portuguese, mm-hmm. French. So mm-hmm. what does that look like for a Black Caribbean woman? Ugh, how much time do you have? <laughs> I mean, the reason why I decided to pick the interior locus of like looking at colonization in the mind, in your subjectivity, is because the deeper work is really to decolonize oneself. Um, And any other output, you know, of trying to function in a project that hopes to decolonize is is at best incomplete Mm. and won't really accomplish such a purpose because in a sense, the subject is still subjugated to colonial control. Um, And so the method just kind of holds up memories of colonizing injury. And many of those memories, when I started the research, it's like, I'm not sure if this is racism or sexism or some capitalism. I'm not sure what this is, but I think it might bear some traces of colonial injury. Mm. And I posit that colonial injuries are like as much a part of us as our organs and our breath. I mean, you're you're walking around with these wounds that have healed healed up in a sense with this bomb that makes you unwell. 
And so it, it, what decolonization is not hoping to do is immediately remedy that, just return right. you to some untouched, purist, pre-colonial state. It cannot happen, right? And there's a lot of discourse in the field. Is decolonization even possible? Is it attainable? I posit that it's a journey that ends in journey. It is, it's actually a lens for understanding the world more so than it is a state of being. Right. And I stopped my social location because there's a way that I am and there's a way that the world reads me, okay? And so when I released this book, I had to go back and forth with the publisher because they were like, this is really, really great. You created a method. Let's just call it engaging career towards the colonization. We don't need to put all that about black womanhood and autobiography. We don't need that. And I was like, but the thing is, the work started for black women from the third world. Yeah. What we're not going to do is now produce a book that eliminates and erases, again, the black woman from the third world from the title of the book. It's for her, it's by her, and it's going to be about her. And if it sells less, it sells less. Because what it is for is for black women from the third world. That's who it's for. And so I, it's, it's literally that work of claiming territory. In that moment, me making that decision is me saying, I won't produce a book that erases black women from the third world from the title. Because my lens of seeing the world now understands that there can be a child who goes through all those years of school and cannot find a book that yeah. centers black women from the third world. And that's damaging. It's sending a message that you are not a knowledge producer and things about you are not worthy of being considered knowledge. So what this book is going to do, if it does anything, is it's going to center Black women from the third world. And that is a decolonial gesture and maneuver. It, it broadens me and it opens me to the world as it is. And it takes off the blinders of capitalism that would cause me to say, it's good for me as a Black woman from the third world if my book sells me. So I'm going to take that out of the title because it's a good thing yeah. for me. And it allows me to see that the larger project here is that we have to take over the canon and put Black in it. We need to put woman in it. We need to put third world in it because these different social locations mean different things. And I really appreciate what you said about the difference between the Caribbean and Africa and the difference between the Caribbean and Latin America. We're just different. We're just not the same. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate that because why can't we explore those nuances and why aren't they worth picking apart? They are. So then let's just do it. And they're important to pick apart for so many reasons, which we don't need to get into. Uh, and, um, but it's important for identity, self-identity. Mm -hmm. Important for understanding things on a political scale in terms of legislation, the way in which yeah. abortion plays out in Jamaica and in the English-speaking Caribbean is different than mm -hmm. how it plays out in Latin America. It's different mm -hmm. state care for children and children who have been... Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. completely different than it is in the con on the continent than it is in the Caribbean than it is in in Latin America. And so, mm -hmm. having these types of books that explore that kind of nuance are mm -hmm. so important. They're important for cross cultural learning. They're important for internal learning. They're mm -hmm. important on an individual level, on a political level. 
I can't about yeah. how important this is. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> now that you're in this process of, of decolonizing yourself, and yeah. I love the fact that you said this has to be for Black women. Mm-hmm. Because for me, it draws the comparison between womanism and feminism and the importance mm-hmm. of naming things and identifying mm-hmm. things and having things that are for black women specifically mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just having this all-encompassing you know other black women have 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 termed uh their coined their own terms to say well this is black feminism as opposed to mm-hmm. feminism and mm-hmm. the type of womanism that you talk about in your book, specifically Africana feminism, Africana womanism, sorry, mm-hmm. which I've never heard anybody talk about other than me, which I'm so, <laughs> super excited. We're no, soulmates. Yes. We really are. There's a reason that Nikeepa introduced us because she is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she talks about Clonora Hudson Weems talks mm-hmm. about the importance of naming things and mm-hmm. the importance of saying no this is not feminism and mm-hmm. so i wanted to ask you about how you discovered womanism mm-hmm. what your understanding of that is particularly africana womanism and mm-hmm. kind of talk about whether or not womanism provided a pathway to decolonization for you yeah i mean you know Hmm. I intended on discovery of self at the outset of this project. And I am a woman. So womanism was just a way to acknowledge that Africana womanism, because I am a woman who is black and I want to consider my blackness in all the facets of what makes me a woman, every way I consider it, because it is very difficult to a, for a woman to be both a woman and Black. And that is a very unique experience that I would like to honor in all of my study. With that said, the most surprising facet of the entire project was that in the end of it, there were 12 different colonizing injuries that were covered. Wow. Eight of them were pop- perpetrated either intentionally or otherwise, by men, and only four by women. And I recognized that sex was playing a considerable role as is enabled through patriarchy, misogyny, and even capitalism, because it has effects on how gender roles play out. And those things are also um, kind of outsets and, and strange bedfellows with colonization. But I wasn't going in, look, that there is really an imbalance for how, in my Black woman body, colonization is enacted against me. I never even had an expectation that there would be that imbalance. But when I looked at the data, I was like, wow, this is a significant difference that demands its own analysis. Now, as for feminism, which, girl, I don't have much to say about it, but (laughs) what I'll say is this. It is a tool for white women that they have used um, for their own purposes. And in many ways, they have used it over and against Black bodies, male and female. It, I don't have any business with it, okay? Praise the Lord for the people who want to use it. That's their business. But Africana womanism is acknowledging a real 
lived experience that is actually very textured and complicated. And in every way that my blackness is implicated in my being, my womanness is also implicated in my being. And there's just a way that the word feminine doesn't even feel the same level of truth for me as a woman does. And that's not even in my expression of self, but actually in my experience of self and what people project onto me. So as a person who, um, growing up had Sunday dinners with my grand aunts and grand uncles, um, my grand uncle, uh, loved the thigh. So did I. Okay. <laughs> At some point in my life, I was expected not just, I mean, obviously I'm racing you for the thought. That's the situation that's happening because I want it and you want it. And I feel like it's anybody's game. But at some point in my life, it became, I am now expected to not only not select to have the thought. This is the making of me as a woman. I'm graduating into becoming a woman. That means I elect not to have the thing that I want. Yeah. And I now am making your plate with my chicken thigh. I'm putting it into your plate and I elect to do that. And I actually won't make my plates until you've made, until I have made your plate. And that's what makes me feminine and woman. And I just inherently just am not that. And so I was already, I was being understood to be either underdeveloped in my feminine qualities or, and that would be at best, or malformed in them at worst. Like I, you're not graduating into becoming feminine. Something is not adjusting the right way. And so because I refuse to make that shift into femininity that would earn me that, which in some ways felt, it felt less black. It felt like the black woman that I've always been would never even know where to find a place. Okay. And it's just my personal feeling and experience. And so what it looked like over time is the women are up and they're serving and they're putting things together. And I am down sitting with the men at the table. Um, it looks like over time, you know, my male friends and I were sitting down, their girlfriends, their wives, they're up, they're fixing their food. And I am down and sitting with them. Did I decide to become less feminine by doing that? No, I didn't decide it with the projection yeah. onto the social location that I, as a bigger, bigger body, black woman was sitting down in my seat and speaking from the lower register as I am wont to do. I'm, I'm hanging out with my brothers. It somehow makes me less feminine. Yeah. It, it, I, I lose the ability to be less feminine the more black that I, that, I, that I feel I am being true to. And I have many friends who, who love that expression of their femininity. They want to serve their husbands and their, you know, praise the Lord, my husband, he gonna get the plate for me and him sometime. <laughs> or I'll get the plate for me and him, but that just, that expectation is just, it doesn't really calculate. Um, and because I can be stripped of femininity so quickly, um, it's, it disturbs me. And also like growing up, um, we had a washing machine, but it was, it was like, this is, you know, this is a washing machine. You can't just use it. And you have to really make sure you have enough stuff to put in the washing machine. Yeah. And then when I became 
I don't know how, how old I was, maybe like eight, you know, it was like, okay, well, now you have a basin and you're unmentionables. They are not going in the washing machine because we can't, you know, you're, you're feminine. So, you know, you have to clean that. That is, that's more dirty than everybody else's clothes. Something about the part, the garment that's the closest to you. Um, it's just showing that you, you're dirty in a way that other people in this household are not dirty. Yeah. Um, so you, your mother, your, your unmentionables won't go in the washing machine. You can't go in the washing machine because that's an insult to the house who doesn't want to have to be touched by those garments. And to me, there's like a dirty femininity, femininity that I came to experience as black and woman at that intersection uh, to be feminine. I had to hide my garments and self-wash them. Listen, Leanne, let me just tell you this. <laughs> you might not have been ready for this, but I'm not, I'm, I couldn't do it. Okay. And I, 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 we had some really awkward, embarrassing arguments about it in my house because I was like, explain to me why my brother's unmentionables can go into the washing machine and mine cannot say it say it out of your mouth yeah that i'm too dirty that I, that something about me is dirtier than him and they can't touch each other that for me is where the beauty of womanism yeah. begins because it feels like i am black and i am a woman and you may take your femininity from me as i express the fullness of, of the plethora of what i am as a black woman but you can't take that I am a woman. And I think that just hearing different um, activists over time say, I'm a woman, ain't I? Like, am, am I not also a woman? That for me, it, it resonates in my bones in a way that femininity and the frailty of trying to be feminine and whatever I need to be to, to earn that. Yeah. I don't subscribe to that in the way that womanhood cannot be stripped of me. So I am, I am invested in womanhood and I am invested in all this, the, the, con the, 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 the complicated and difficult ways that I have to navigate my blackness and womanness. And this tool that Clonora Hudson Wings has created is created with that in mind. Yeah. So from the very outset, that's for me. Everybody else can do what they want to do, but that that also can't even accomplish such a purpose. Um, so I really, it was a it was an open and shut case. Yeah, I mean, my discovery of her work was largely in this idea of feminism has same similarly. Feminism doesn't talk about me. Feminism doesn't. Yeah. Talk my experiences and feminism as a movement has actively excluded me oh yeah every single step of the way regardless of which country you're talking about it has excluded me in ways that have not only neglected me but actually been detrimental to me and my community and so when i saw this renaming of of this concept for the purposes or for with the intention of holding black women and validating their experiences and not just validating their experiences but validating their experiences within the black community so woman yeah. talks about black men it talks about their space within that whereas mm -hmm. you know traditionally when we talk about feminism it's seen as 
othering men. Mm -hmm. And really what womanism does is it talks about women, black women within the context of our community and how Mm -hmm. we as how this concept can move all of us forward. Absolutely. And so it, it brings me to this really interesting point that you talk about in the book about the interplay between race and gender. And you make this really interesting comparison between the power of white men or white women and black men. I don't even remember this. Tell me, <laughs> tell me what I was talking about. <laughs> You kind of talk about this, the, the, obviously we talk about the fact that black men have power mm-hmm. in the context of being men. Mm-hmm. And we talk about white women and their power within the context of being white. Mm-hmm. And how as a black Caribbean woman, woman, mm-hmm. you have access to neither of those things. And mm-hmm. then it forces you, not forces you, but you are then put in a position to and I think many black women think about this and and usually there's a, a common answer is the choice that one has to make between race and gender. Mm-hmm. Which side are mm-hmm. you on? Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. a woman first? Are you a oh yeah? Mm-hmm. Are you a black person first? And mm-hmm. I think about there's another academic who's actually an economist called Amartya Sen, and he she talks about. Uh, multiplying uh, or occupying different identities based on the Mm -hmm. space that you're in and Mm -hmm. for some reason and maybe this is something that you can flesh out as a black woman those two identities are always at play for me there's Mm -hmm. never one there's never a space where actually one jumps out in front of the other i am always a woman and i am always black So even mm-hmm. when I choose my race, which is what I would mm-hmm. always choose if someone were mm-hmm. to ask me, that's mm-hmm. still being impacted by the fact that I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering how colonization or decolonizing yourself with the compounding factor of mm-hmm. race and gender mm-hmm. is how does that work as a how. What, how, how did that play into your process of decolonization? <sighs> I mean, what I will say is this. Um, there is, towards the end of, towards the end of the book, I come to like three conclusions. And one of the sections is called uh, self-inexpressibility that leads to self-invisibility. And I think that what you're talking about is making a false choice that would render a part of you invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're making a false choice, it's an incomplete choice. Like now you're selling it. You're telling the part that supports your argument, but it is not the whole truth. So it's, it, it's, it's rid in a sense of its liberatory um, capacity because you're, you're selecting parts of yourself to the detriment of other parts. Um, and so I think the ability to express the fullness of what my blackness needs and thirsts for and expressing what me as a woman needs and thirsts for at the same time at all times is the only way I could truly offer an expression of myself because there is, as you said, no moment in which I am black and not woman or woman and not black. 
And because of the oppressive forces functioning around us, there are unique ways in which my Blackness is being used over and against me. And my the fact that I'm being a woman is being used over and against me. And I have to be conscious of, of both of those things simultaneously. I mean, if you really want to complicate that um, further, also my geopolitical location is, is playing a role. I have to pay attention. And that's why, you know, I, I, I'm working with Clonora because she's Africana. She's throwing the diaspora in. Please do. Um, because the fact is, I am different from a woman who is Black, who is from the center of empire, whether that's the UK or the US. We're from different social locations. There's different ways that our lives are playing out. There's different ways that I'm heard. There's different ways that I'm understood. And I have a different experience. And so I think that allowing in the full measure of my experience is the only way that you know, what you said at the beginning is it, I was saying truths that were singular, but they were universally accurate. Yeah. And, and I think that can only happen when you're not picking parts that you can say. But, yeah. but instead, I'm just I'm deciding like white supremacy is an affirmation of whiteness, but it's also a disaffirmation of everything else. And then what I'm deciding is that if I am disaffirmed, then I'm going to be absent and if I'm absent, then I'm going to be invisible. And if I'm invisible, then I'm going to start disappearing. Like parts of me that are not visible to the world will somehow not be there for me anymore, for me to see, for me to access. So I can't allow that trajectory. So all of it has to be able to be present. And so it's, uh, it's one of the things that you talk about in the book is you talk about this like idea of or this experience about speaking patwa right yes girl get into it Come on. the fact that english or being able to speak english is a tool of power without mm -hmm. most people who are colonized recognizing mm -hmm. that patwa has its own power mm -hmm. and so when i think about using patwa outside of jamaica I think of it as something that I hold on to mm -hmm. throughout my process, <laughs> throughout my journey of subjective mm -hmm. transmigration. This is something that makes, reminds me of home. This is something that keeps yeah. me grounded to my identity. This mm -hmm. is something that keeps me in my decolonized state or not decolonized mm -hmm. state, but is part of the sticking to, to and loving Patwa and utilizing Patwa and embracing it in spaces where it is not welcomed is part of that decolonizing. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. so, and when I, even just on a granular level, when you were talking about the fact that your dad didn't want you to speak Patwa and I'll let you expand on the story, mm -hmm. that was literally my dad. We were not yeah. Patwa. He spoke what he would refer to as the queen's english and he didn't even allow us to speak other languages because he didn't want us to it, it he didn't want to sully our capacity to speak the queen's english and he mm -hmm. was so important to our survival to our capacity to thrive mm -hmm. and and it what and it and it comes from this very colonialized space right sure yeah sure. And, yeah talk about about your journey with that in the book yeah you know i quote this um book when i'm in that section called kill the native 
save the map. And it's actually about these boarding schools in the United States where um, indigenous peoples to this land were put in boarding schools to be quote unquote civilized out of themselves. Okay, so we think of genocide as like killing off a group of people. Linguicide is killing off the part of their culture that is their language. So if you kill it off, the part of them that spoke that language dies along with it. So the person remains, but you've reformed them. You've reprogrammed them because they're not the same in English as they were in that other language because there's another cultural configuration of them that is able to present and manifest exclusively that way. And so in Jamaica, we had our own version of that. The churches decided to become schools. The schools decided to operate as an ideological state apparatus. That means here is a school and we're going to teach you what you should think to be civilized. And in this school, what you're going to learn is that you are a native. You are uncivilized. But you can become dignified. You can become a part of society. You can be civilized into society if you do these things. One of which is you need to move away from the way that you sound because the way that you sound is evidence that you are less than a man. You are a barbarian, but you can become a man if you mimic me and you start to sound like me and my language will make you human. And so in school, it's used as a way to make us who are not inherently born human into a type of humanity. But the gag is, you'll never be fully seen as human, but you definitely can lose yourself. You can lose your language. And in Jamaica, what the, what the, the, oper the operation of linguicide happens because there is a designation of an acrolect. Like this is a prestigious, best form of the language. The Queen's English. You speak the Queen's English, you are permitted into high society, you are civilized. The baselect is the other version of the language that we are designating as less prominent, less prestigious, more barbaric. If you speak it, it's evidence that you're less than human. And so if I am willing to abandon the baselect and of, of Patwa and any other Creole, and I, I, I decide to take the acrolect into my mouth, into my mind, into my understanding, this is how I become human. This is how I become that. This is how I receive dignity. This is how I become civilized. This is how I have opportunities in the world. Then what it does is it changes me to a person who sounds like the colonizer. Mm. And I no longer sound like myself. And I love that in Jamaica right now, we're looking at the crown and, and everybody want to be on tour coming down here and doing a tour that is just really um, beyond me. That, yeah. the, that, that, that the British crown, the most murderous dynasty of all time, wants to come to its former areas of terror yeah. and celebrate that fact is, is truly shocking. Um, but, you know, a lot of Jamaicans have always really loved the British. Yeah. Hearing, you know, the problem with us is we need to go back to being a colony. That's what we yeah. need to do because look at what's happening with the, the, the currency and stuff. And so it's taken a while for us to get here in collective consciousness in recognizing, hey, something was wrong with what was done to us. Um, but there isn't a full understanding of our own history. When I released this book and I did a quick book talk, I put it up on Instagram, people were up in arms. They were like, wait, we did learn about our history. We learned about the, the Caribs and the Incas and the Aztecs. 
You didn't learn about yourself. Those are not African people. You are black. That wasn't your history. But I'm saying these are educated people who genuinely believe that they were protecting their institution and their cells. Maybe it was too painful to face the possibility that this institution that you so deeply respect has done you a disservice in not telling you the truth about where you came from. You didn't get that history. Um, and so I think, you know, our abandonment of, of what we were, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in who we are now that we don't know the difference. We don't even know what we've lost and what we've left. And so, yeah, my dad grew up in a society, your dad grew up in a society where there will be social consequences if you can't speak the Queen's yeah. English. And yeah. this is your opportunity. This is your way. My dad grew up in rural Westmoreland, driving a tractor before he was six years old. But let me tell you something. He can, he can talk you under the table. He majored in Latin, okay? This isn't even a, a, a live language anymore. But this is how much, how deeply these things are entrenched. Yeah. Um, his mother, you know, was an English teacher. I mean, she, we are civilizing ourselves out of ourselves intergenerationally. Um, and we're teaching our children, even now, we're teaching them English. When I see scholars like Dr. Carolyn Cooper at the University of the West Indies, or now she's Professor Emerita, she's no longer there, fighting for us to dignify Patwa just as being a language. Yeah. I wouldn't say let's make it the language of choice, but let's just acknowledge that we have one. People are up in arms about that. She's so fringe. She's so over the top. This is so weird. Why would we ever do that? We would do it because it's ours. We would do it because we would value who we are and who we can be if we're actually being ourselves. But I don't even know that we are really ready for that conversation because we're still using those same confines to measure each other. We are measuring dignity by how well a person can speak English. Yeah. And just like there can't be a recovery of a pre-colonial state, I can't recover what I would have sounded like if I wasn't trained not to sound yeah. like myself. You can't recover that. So that's a loss. There's a literal genocide of culture happening in the form of language. There's a linguicide actively happening as we are critiquing the queen in the queen's English. It's actually, and there's so much nuance to it as well, right? Because my parents and my dad in particular, avid reader, and mm -hmm. just like your dad and your grandmother who uh, focused on English and could <laughs> read Latin, my dad could quote any Shakespearean play that mm -hmm. you could think of. But when I got older, it was interesting and I started to be able to look at what he was or what he had read. There was Franz Fanon in there. There was Martin mm. Luther King in there, but things that he never gave to me. Mm. I didn't want to again, sully my chances for success or survival even mm -hmm. in certain instances. And it's interesting that he thought about blackness and mm -hmm. me learning about my blackness as mm -hmm. a detriment to my becoming a well-adjusted human being that could navigate life. And there's something mm -hmm. to say, and it's a, it's a long quote, but I think it's important. So I'm going to read it. It yeah. says, we accept historically that to be a Jew has never been a problem, but that Hitler's neurotic compulsions and their effects on collective thought in Germany were the grave issue at hand. 
We are still yet to fully appreciate, however, that the hysteria of white supremacy is the only problematic thing about being black. We live mm -hmm. under the thumb of our tyrant while everyone pretends that he simply isn't there. Mm. And it's so true. Even when we are proud of being black, there is, and maybe this is an older generation, and I'm glad to see that that's shifting now, particularly when I think about the women in our community and how unapologetic they are about expressing the various ways in which blackness comes out, mm -hmm. is that many of us still operate in a, in a way that we are, we're proud to be black, but don't like to show our blackness. Absolutely. And I, you know, what this is reminding me of is this, this, um, this memory is not in this book, but it is in the second book, which is called The Black Subaltern and Intimate Witnessing. And that's exactly what it is. Um, and in it, um, I separate the book into three different sections, the flattening of the colonized subject, the, the disappearing of the colonized subject, and then the theory that I developed called subjective transmigration, where you're operating between geopolitical locations. And maybe we'll come back to talk about that when that book releases later this spring. <laughs> but in it, I talk about this experience that I had with my mom who had locks, and they were so long at that point, just to let you know like how long she had had them. Um, and I decided midway through, you know, my college career, like, yeah, I think, you know, I want to get locks because like, it's really hard to like manage my hair. And I like, I love wind. And, and it just, it's like a big thing for me. I love wind. I want to wind down the window in the car. Like I want to feel wind all the time. And the fact that wind would be disheveling to me is just like, dissonant with who I am as a person that I would shield myself from something I love. And I recognize that when my mom is in wind, she's completely put together. So I just feel like her, her hair is naturally able to be well in a place where I love, and I don't want to hide from wind if I love it. So I should do this with my hair as well. Um, and my mom told me, you can't get locks. You know, if you got locks, you're, you wouldn't even be able to get a job at the bank. And, um, you know, my mom is a well-respected business owner who, again, had very long luck. Yeah. You have them in your head. Um, and I, I remember that this is one of the few times that I just fell silent because I knew that there was nothing to join us in the way that we saw the world. There was no bridge mm. for us to meet each other. And, I, and so it just what you're saying about allowing ourselves into our blackness in invisible ways. Um, it, it's really a question of social location. I can be a black person with, who is phenotypically, I'm black, but I can operate in ways that abandon the fact that I am a black person yeah. and I can, I can ascribe privilege that way. I can straighten out my hair and you know, there are different things that I can do to signal, don't worry, I'm ascribe, I'm trying to come closer to whiteness. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not threatening because I'm not trying to be myself. I'm trying to be yourself. Um, and it, that's a way that you'll always be able to control me. And my mom finally accepted what my hair looked like because um, in my junior year of college, I got a job at the White House. And I, um, I think that for her, it's clicked that if I can take these locks in my head, and be in the White House, then that means that maybe I could get a job at the bank. 
And maybe I can operate as a full functioning professional human being with locks in my head. And I don't have to own my own business to earn the privilege of having the hair that I have. I can just have it. But it, it's actually a journey. Um, and it, it's a decision that we're watching to see like, what are the consequences? And I want to say that there are consequences. Yeah, I was just I wouldn't have taken, Yeah, I wouldn't have taken as long to finish my dissertation in the Lord if I had chosen to just do what I was told to do. Just do an easier topic that is already established that just, you just turn out these chapters and bam, it's acceptable. We know it's scholarship, it's respected. And then once you've done that, you know, you get your professor job and then you do a couple of empirical studies that are strictly social science. And then once you've gotten tenure, then you can do the work that ideologically excites you and you can write that. But I don't really believe that you ever arrived to that place because that's a bad bargain. Mm -hmm. it, you're, 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 you're letting go of yourself pieces. You're letting go of pieces of yourself slowly until when you're ready to do that internal excavation to do what you love, is it still there anymore? Yeah. Do you even know what interests you when you keep suppressing your own curiosities, your own desire of what your hair would look like, your own sound, your own ideas, because you keep putting them off, believing that you can come back to them later. And my second book is really a treatise on the fact that you can't. The fact that it's not just that you're becoming invisible to the world and you're making this bargain, but don't worry, you're going to come back to it. You can't come back to it because that version of you doesn't exist anymore. And this version of you is the one that paid the piper. So who knows what's there now? Who knows what you can offer now that you've given away so many pieces of yourself? So hold on to your locks and your patois because you can't afford to let it go and consider that you can always come back to it because that's just not borne out as always being the case. Yeah, well, that is true on so many levels and it's so empowering to hear you say it so emphatically because I think it's not something that we ever like to talk about and it's... Mm. It's true. The more you let go of yourself, the more you apologize for for your hair, the more you try to avoid or the more you try to fit in. Mm -hmm. It's just a piece of yourself that never comes back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. funny. You say in the book, um, what is done is very difficult to undo. And this is exactly the point that you're making now. <laughs> an awareness of the preposterousness of the indictments of white gaze did not release us from its control. Mm -hmm. And it's so true that, that what you just said is exactly that. It's like once you go down that path of letting bits of yourself go for the sake of conformity, for the sake of thinking that you, you know, you need to access certain certain privileges and certain bits of power. Mm -hmm. It's not it the impact or whatever you gain is not worth it because you have lost the reason that you were trying to access those things in the first place, right? Yeah, and it becomes an act of performance. You yeah. know, I mean, colonization in a sense is just performing whiteness so that you can gain privilege. Mm -hmm. And and in many ways it happens at the subconscious level. You're not even aware that you're making these trades 
until maybe one day you become aware, but most people do not ever become aware of the fact that they've made these trades. Um, people who are decolonizing might decide like, you know what, this was whiteness, the opposite is blackness, let me just start performing that. But it's but the, the true decolonization is an, the achievement of authenticity. It's not, this is me. I'm not mimicking white people and I'm not mimicking other black people. I'm actually accessing the fullness of myself. And so that is the problem with trying to return to something that is no longer there. You can now mimic, like you can mimic something that you assume would have been what it might have been, but that's also not authentic and doesn't reward you with the fullness of the soul of being yourself. And so that's that's really the um that's really the point I'm making where I'm saying my awareness that something has been taken from me, that there's something really sinister in this, that I should do something about it, is not the same as actually doing something about it, or even returning to a place of selfhood. And my place of selfhood now is not the place of selfhood that it would have been before I made those trades. And that's why I do this work in curriculum, because kids are going into schools and they're coming out colonized because ideological schools were literally designated. There are historical documents that will explicitly in black and white tell you that schools are intended to create laborers, for this purpose, this class of people should be this. We want the woman to do this. We want the men to do that. That's how they were designed. And our schools are still functioning after that colonial model that was designed to produce colonial subjects of the crown. So we're still doing that. And until we change that course, which is really all a curriculum is, it's a suggestion of things to consider so that you can develop into being yourself. If I don't present in that course of things to consider, things that reflect the fullness of who you are, what I'm saying is in order to become knowledgeable, you must decide not to be you. There's nothing about you that can be knowledgeable. Yeah. In order to become knowledgeable, you have to become the men of knowledge. And the men of knowledge are white men. So find a way to become the closest to a white man that you can be, or know that you will never really have knowledge. So this is a way of us generating. It's a generation of new ideas and inquiry from the site of we were colonized. And what else? What else can come from this space of our discovery? And what should that mean? What are the implications for how we do school and how we do relationships and how we do language and how we do life, how we do family, how we do considerations of what the, the roles of women and men in society? Where is this all coming from and can we reconsider it? And I propose that we can. And you know what? I feel like you've just given language to exactly what we try to do at Dope Black Women. We genuinely mm. try to provide a space for women to feel as though they can be themselves without the white gaze, without mm -hmm. having to be concerned about how it makes them look to, to anybody else, even us who are mm -hmm. also going through our own journey of, yeah. of trying to wade through this colonization, right? That we've all, that we've all been through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I hope that this conversation contributes to that space and contributes to women mm. like 
they can be themselves unapologetically. They can wear their hair however they want to wear it in whatever space they want to wear it in. Mm-hmm. So that they can speak Pato and reclaim that and use it in majority white spaces and that people should not feel as though that's not allowed or yeah. that's okay. And that yeah. they're for people to conform to us rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. It is a home homemaking space. And I and that's probably why I love listening to a space that's being etched out specifically for such a purpose. And maybe without you explicitly articulating that, I've been experiencing as I listen to like the creator of Afropod saying, listen, I just want to hear my Ghanaian grandparents' stories keep going. Or, you know what I mean? Like, or if I'm listening to dope Black dads talk about what it is like to be a man in Jamaica and raising my kids and I'm going to the, the um, what's it, the, the meetings for the kids' parents, whatever yeah, that's called. Right, and meetings, yeah, yeah, all what that dads, means yeah. me as a man. Like, what's my paradigm of thinking of manhood? If nothing is being projected onto me, what do I think is necessary and okay? And that's, space of considering otherwise is very rich enriching for me um and so i'm so glad for the dope black women podcast because it's a place where i I get to jump into other people's brains as they're on a similar journey to center themselves yeah um, and to consider themselves as complete where has this journey of decolonizing which we've accepted is a never-ending journey because it is (laughs) the journey that takes you on a journey, right? Mm -hmm. Where has it left you? Where are you now? Where do you sit with it now? And and where do you see it taking you? The the most honest answer today, I don't know. Mm. But what I will say is that before I had the language for it, I was engaged in this project because of conversations I was having with Rastaman in Jamaica. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just, there's a way of thinking that exists there that may not exist in the canon, but there is a subversive, almost like Socratic turning everything against itself and, and really challenging people. Re- reconsider that. Like you're, you're saying that as a statement, but is that the way that it really is? And I think that for a lot of us, can be comical because it's it's almost like a caricature yeah. of being. You know, these people are so different that it's like, what of this can I consider to be true? But I think the process is just useful. The process of people who belong to themselves questioning you about whether or not you belong to yourself. And I think that me, me having the rich opportunity of on an ongoing basis, engaging with people who at varying levels were provoking and and challenging constructs and thinking about things in a way that I had never heard before, but I could feel that there was something sincerely valuable in their provocations. It, it, It enriched me and empowered me to ask similar questions in the academy and beyond it. And I think that, you know, when I when I um, see the future, 
of what I hope to be true, I hope to continue to be engaged in this discourse. And I hope that it has a material impact on what my kids learn in school. I hope it has a material impact on this survey that's been out since forever. Can we put Patwa in schools? Can, can we acknowledge that we have a language? I hope it has a, it makes people think again about everything they're sure they already know. Are those your thoughts? Are you sure they're yours? Or did somebody put them there? Did somebody tell you that you have to think this way in order to have access to things that you want and need? And so I think that it enriches us to have these conversations and to be joined into the conversations from everywhere that we are because it's an affirmation that we have our own knowledge. We have a source of knowledge that is our lives and we should be invited to integrate our, our experiential knowledge into the epistemology of being in the academy, in the workplace and beyond it, because there's something about us that's wise. There's, there's something about us that's been surviving against survival. There's something about us that's different and has remained unnamed. And we haven't even been looking at it, but it's actually been it's, it's, it's been keeping us. It's been keeping us exceptional. Um, and we don't even fully understand it. And I hope that it encar this encourages someone to feel like that's worth exploration. And I, and I hope that it wherever the exploration happens for people, that they leave this conversation knowing that they're not making that exploration alone, that I'm making it with you. And I think it's worth doing. And I think that it's not fringy. I think it's actually the very center of our being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the book does exactly that. I know it did mm. it for me. Mm. I can't wait to read the second book, which I'm sure will do exactly the same, if not more. And I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. It's going to happen. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, the book really, as I said, it is a singular experience that is universally true. Hmm. It made me think, you know, so many times I think as black women, and this is something that Alice Walker does for me as well, hmm. is when you are at your wits end and you feel like, screw it, I can't <laughs> do this anymore. Or, you know, it's not worth it. Things are never going to shift. Actually, what reading your book made me think was that even if things never shift, but I do, mm. that's what matters. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and bringing myself or carrying myself to a place of complete acceptance and giving myself a deeper understanding of who I am, why I am the way I am, and pushing myself to be authentically myself without mm -hmm. the white gaze or negating the white gaze in every single way that I possibly can. Not shifting, mm -hmm. because it may never go. Mm -hmm. But operating in a way where it has as little impact on on how I navigate myself or how I navigate my own personal journey as much as possible mm -hmm. is is what matters mm. and, I love that. and I don't know that I, I hope that women reading this book come away with that feeling and I think they will and so I encourage everybody to get this book 
Shauna, tell them where they can get it. What's the process? Uh, tell us about the next book. Tell yeah. us where they can find you. Yeah. I guess I, I will end with saying that if colonization is the control of your mind, decolonization isn't trying to control it in another way. It's returning you to yourself. Whatever way that you return, return home to yourself. And you can, you can do that by reading this book and engaging this method that I've developed for you out of, it's a love letter to every black woman in the Caribbean. And, um, and, and, and you can do that um, by looking at whatever retailer it's on Amazon, uh, it's produced by Rutledge Press, so you can find it there as well. But I mean, if you just find it in Google, you'll find a way to buy it. And it's available in hardback and it's also available in like Kindle, which is a little bit more affordable because the version of it that's out now is technically for like libraries, so it's priced accordingly. And again, the name of the book is Engaging Karere Towards Decolonization, Nego Negotiating Black Womanhood to Through Autobiographical Analysis. Um, my second book is coming out, um, it's coming out in the spring and it's coming out of the experience of fighting to keep the words black and womanhood in the title of the first book. Um, it felt like a conversation that needed to keep going. It's called The Black Subaltern and Intimate Witnessing. And if the first book is method, the second book is musing. The second book is treatise. The second book is truth telling. And what I'm doing is I'm avoiding the binary of victim and savior. And I'm really exploring the complicated intricacy of being implicated as both at the same time in a colonizing system. And as I mentioned before, I'm exploring the concepts of being flattened as a black woman, being invisible, being disappearing, that's beyond invisibility because I'm now disappearing from myself. Mm -hmm. And then the concept of subjective transmigration where I'm stuck in a place of journeying between literal, physical, geopolitical locations between home and empire and what that does to my being. Um, and so that book will be released later on this spring. And similarly, you can find it anywhere that you find your books. And Leanne, I just want to say thank you so much for, um, for being such a light and such a wonderful person. I'm so glad that we were able to meet. I'm so glad that we are friends. And I'm so glad that you extended this platform to me for us to have this conversation and for me to talk about my heart work. Your work is consistently impacting my life on a day-to-day -day basis. Every time we have a conversation, and Sean and I, for people who don't know, we don't speak very often, <laughs> but we have these like three-hour conversations every yeah. time. <laughs> and you always leave me with thoughts about how I can be better. You always leave me with thoughts about just, just pushing me to think through things, not necessarily mm -hmm. having answers, but forcing me to really think about what does this mean? Where does this mm -hmm. put me? how is this actually impacting me? You know, so much of our, our mm -hmm. lives, I think we, we spend deflecting and like mm -hmm. compartmentalizing and you're like, no, Leanne, this is important. This matters. 
take stock of what's in front of you. And I appreciate for you consistently doing that in our friendship. Mm -hmm. You consistently do that in your work. Mm -hmm. And it is, I can't imagine that it's easy to do. It's not easy, especially if you're doing it for yourself which you obviously are. And that's what this book is about, right? Mm -hmm. And so thank you for staying the course. So thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Don't forget to buy the book anywhere that you can find it. Amazon, Kindle, um, Google, Dr. Shauna Knox, it will come up. And don't forget, we will be back with you next week. But until then, stay blessed and unapologetically black. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.